Hi, y'all. This is Kristen Chenoweth. Hi, I'm Gloria Stefan. This is Sarah Bareilles. Hi, I'm Patty Lapone. This is Lynn Manuel Miranda. You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, here's an example of the importance of a stage manager and getting it right, because you can really make or break a moment. And I had called the show many times. It wasn't like I was new at it. And Buddy Fiddler, who's the producer, Hollywood producer, he is on the phone with Stein. And the set is just this huge desk with him on the phone. And he's got a writing crop in his hand. Very Cecil B. DeMille, right? That's, that's right. And he's yelling at Stein on the phone because he wants changes and he wants things to happen. And Stein hangs up on him and he says, Stein, Stein, God damn it, writers. And he hits the crop on the desk. And when he hits the crop on the desk, a character, Avril, pops up from under the desk and says, what was that? (laughs) Blackout. Right. So that's the punchline to the scene. And it's like, ah, ha, ha, I see what's going on she, here. She's under the desk, making He's sure the that she under the desk of their producer. And we all know what's going on. Right. Right. So that's the scene. Simple enough. So I'm calling it one day and I've got all my scene shift ducks in a row ready to do the shift out of the, the scene. And I say electrics 47 with the lilt. So, you know, the next word is go and the, the blackout will happen when I say that. But I prep it. And he says, Stein, Stein, God damn it, writers. And when he hit that crop, something about it scared the crap out of me. And I said, go, blackout. <laughs> oh, no. So, there is no girl. There is no punchline. There is no laugh. There's applause, but it's kind of, you know, Chuck Levin, who was playing Buddy Fiddler, was a handful. Great in the part, but... He came off stage and I'm doing a big scene shift, very precise, lots of cue lights to cue different things to move. And I'm talking the whole time. He comes and he is screaming at me. Oh no. Screaming at me. Now I understand why. And if he had done it at intermission, I totally would have taken it and said, I'm so sorry. It was totally my mistake, right? But that is an example of uh, how a stage manager is critical in a situation. <laughs> yeah. And look, I'm not saying you did it on purpose, right? <laughs> but <laughs> you can also make or break an actor. So be nice to your stage. Exactly. Manager. Be nice to your stage managers, people. Your jokes aren't going to land in the dark. Welcome, everybody, to a musical theater podcast where we discuss the cultural and emotional impact of some of our favorite musicals in theater history. My name is Jeffrey Scott Parsons. You can call me Jeff. Today, we are talking about City of Angels. And look, I know, I know, I am so past due in terms of having a guest on that is a stage manager. I admit to this. I take full responsibility. And today, 
I make up for it because not only is my guest a stage manager, she wrote the book on stage managing. Everybody, please welcome Jill Gold. Thank you. Now I feel the burden for all stage managers of all times, but I'm going to try to do us proud. You will not be the last stage manager on the show, so don't uh, worry. You are merely you the first. That. Great. <laughs> now, you are a production stage manager. I got to say, you are one of those people, when I walk into a rehearsal in which you are the stage manager, I feel taken care of. I feel confident that things are going to be done, and there's nothing better. So thank thank you. you. Well, that's the goal. So that's nice to hear. What many people don't realize is that the union, the actors union for theater actors, is also the union for stage managers. And I've always loved that. I love that we are in the same union because uh, it means that you're not necessarily some police officer that's trying to get me in trouble. We are literally on the same team. It is great. It's sort of a double-edged sword. There's actually a big push right now on a lot of stage manager group chats and Facebook pages and things to add stage manager to the title somehow or to make it a more all-inclusive title as opposed to actor's equity. Yes, Um, I completely understand that. Because while we are members, and I agree with you, I can say to you if you have a complaint I totally agree. I am part of your union as well. I will fight for those hours to be reduced or for us to get overtime. And you should trust that I will do that because honestly, it's self-serving for me too, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But on the other hand, most of the rules in there that I've found are specific to actors. And we are in our contracts. It says stage manager referred to as actor, right? We are called actor throughout really i did not know and we are what that means is in the equity contracts in the rule books anything that says actor should apply to us as well but it doesn't always we're always there before you are we're always there after you are we're doing more things than are designated in those rule books so i understand people's point it doesn't bother me personally as much uh maybe just because i'm used to it i've been a member for 36 years this july so And my union has done a lot of wonderful things for me. But I do understand the dichotomy of of wanting to feel like you're more a part of it. Yeah. Yeah. That's really fascinating. There are people who have brought up our own union that I disagree with for the reason you just said. Mm -hmm. I think then it's a more us them situation. And we're already sort of in an us them because we work for the producer and we work for the director but we also work for the cast and how do you keep everybody working together towards the same common goal without pissing somebody off, right? So that's <laughs> that's the whole job in a nutshell right there. Yeah. I mean, you you did just put it in a nutshell so beautifully, but what are the attributes that most successfully make that happen? Personality. Yeah. And by personality, I include sense of humor, not taking things personally finding ways to deal with stress um, because there will be stress and how you deal with that in the room needs to be not the way you deal with it when you go home and put your fist through the wall because you had a horrible day. (laughs) Um, But really, I was just talking to a student on Zoom the other day. I, I mentor a lot of students and she was talking about interviews and she said, what do you look for when someone comes in to be a production assistant? And I said, personality, right? So that's sort of the key thing in my mind. Everything else you can learn. Wow. Absolutely. 
in theater, and it's one of the things that I love so much about it, is that it is an it is an in-person art form. Our audiences are there live, which means the actors are there live with other actors and with their costumers and technicians and dressers. Everybody is participating in interpersonal relationships that can either make or break an experience. And that's what makes it so fun. You know, when I like to call shows off stage in the wings as opposed to isolated in a booth somewhere. Mm-hmm. And if I have the option, I will always choose that. Um, that yeah. also comes from touring a lot. I'm used to it. But I love standing there and I can focus on my cues and still have you walk by before an entrance and give me a pat on the back or oh. give me a thumbs up or you come off after a scene where something's gone wrong, but nobody knows it, but you and I, and we wink at each other and we know. (laughs) I love, I love that interaction. And the other thing, boy, don't you miss live audiences? The other thing uh, that I love is even though 90% of the audience doesn't know I exist, calling the button right at the end of a big dance number and hearing the roar of applause, I contributed to that. Right. If I had not called that button at exactly the right time, the moment wouldn't have been as exciting. You know, it's just knowing and taking pride in that and contributing to the live different every night situation that just makes it for me. Ah, I'm so happy you're here. Me too. Now, let's talk about your relationship to City of Angels, (sighs) which I know is a show near and dear to your heart. It's my favorite show for so many reasons. Um, (laughs) I was looking through my old script and some ephemera. I have clippings of reviews and the opening night society column and paperwork from running backstage and cues and things like that. We opened May 20th, 1991 at the Schubert in LA. So it's been 30 years (gasps) next month. So this is a very very apropos time to be talking about City of Angels. Totally Um, by accident, but I'll take it. Yeah, good on you. I was not part of the rehearsal process because I was in New York rehearsing the Bye Bye Birdie tour with Tommy Toon and Anne Reinking. No way. So they hired me as the second assistant in New York, even though they knew I already had City of Angels and was going to have to jump. Talk about two amazing shows. And let me tell you quickly, the three kids in that show, my Kim was Susan Egan, my Birdie was Mark Kudish, and my Hugo was Steve Zahn. Well, Tommy Toon and Anne they Rankin did okay. And Marilyn Cooper were the draws. Marilyn Cooper. Those three did okay. I've heard stories about Anne Ranking in Bye Bye Birdie that she could get applause for just like bopping her head. She's so precise. And I mean, with her with her passing away recently, you saw clips all over Facebook and stuff. When she and Tommy danced, because she's also tall, you know, I mean, she's still not tall compared to Tommy. Right. They both got legs. Hold her own. <laughs> As opposed to Marilyn Cooper. That alone was a sight gang. You saw Tommy standing next to Marilyn Cooper and it was a laugh. Oh my gosh, that's fantastic. Yeah, okay, anyway, so you're so you're in New York. No, so you're in New York rehearsing Bye Bye Birdie. And then And then they went off on the road and I started in with City of Angels uh, at the Schubert. It had already opened in New York. Was it already a big hit and you knew what was coming? Here's the thing. It was a big hit and we knew what was coming. And it was about L.A. And we all thought, oh, well, if it did well in New York, it's going to do even better here because it's about that. And that was not the case. We ran about four months, which I don't really know if that was planned, although I don't think it was. Mm -hmm. Um, But that company then became the national tour. So we got another year and a half out of it. Um, 
but we did have to start in LA. We were lucky enough to have some of the original Broadway cast. So we had James Naughton and Randy Graff and Karen Feynman who'd gone in for Rachel York and um, people who had done it before. That's awesome. Did Was the rehearsal process shortened because of that? Because just, just so everybody knows, this is one of, at this point, probably one of the most technically complex shows that Broadway had ever seen. And also very hard to replicate in a rehearsal hall. Fair enough. With just tape on the floor. Right. But even if you had all the small movable set pieces, all those, there were sliders moving and big scenic pieces moving in and out. And like any big musical, you know, but sure. there were 37 scenes in this show. So it was a lot to put <laughs> to put on the actors, which which meant they really had to know their stuff going into tech so that they didn't get thrown off. Yeah, you're not going to be figuring stuff out. Exactly. Once you get on stage. Now, in musical theater, we have a lot of shows about movies. In general, though, those are all based on pre-existing films. Singing in the Rain, Sunset Boulevard. These are shows about the film industry, but they were films first. And none of them are considered wildly successful. However, City of Angels is an original musical that is paying an homage to film. And so it didn't have to replicate the flow of a film that we already know. It could create its own thing and still make it incredibly entertaining. Okay, now this is the moment in the podcast where we usually talk about the history of the show and the creators of it to give some context to the cultural and emotional impact of its storytelling. And today, I get to bring in someone uh, to the conversation that knows a couple things about this show and its creation because he's literally one of the creators. He's an Oscar nominee. He won a Tony Award for writing the lyrics to City of Angels. And let's face it, anyone who comes up with Zero to Hero is a hero of mine. Everyone, please welcome David Zippel. Yay! Thank you for that lovely introduction. <laughs> of course, my pleasure. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I'm just delighted to have you here. Many people who are listening to the show maybe don't know City of Angels because it doesn't get produced very much, but we all know you from Hercules because we grew up with that show and have been singing and this perfect package packs a pair of perfect pecs for our entire childhood. I believe. <laughs> it does kill me a little that you said you grew up with Hercules because I worked on Hercules with David. Did you really? <laughs> yeah. Wait, so you guys not only work together on City of Angels. Oh, by the way, I should say that, Jill, it's because of you that David's here. So thank you as well. My of gosh. Course. My pleasure. You, how did you guys work on Hercules together? I was working at Disney Animation then, and I started as the production manager on Hercules. And then I moved to more of a sort of a company manager position. But uh, oh David gosh. and I were in some of the same meetings and recording yeah. sessions and things. Holy cow. We got Disney history right here. We go way back. Okay, so for those familiar with the musical City of Angels, there's this character by the name of Alora Kingsley, and she's like the femme fatale, and, and she's married to a very rich, very old man who hasn't died yet because he's literally in an iron lung being spoon-fed soup. Now, 
I can think of no better metaphor for the state of musical theater on Broadway in 1989 than Luther Kingsley in an iron lung. <laughs> like the musical season on Broadway before City of Angels is considered by many to be one of the worst of all time. You had one colossal flop after another. Carrie the musical, Legs Diamond, Chu Chen, and a musical, David, that was written by your City of Angels collaborator called Welcome to the Club. So I wanted to begin by talking of what were your memories or what are your memories of the culture of musical theater at this time when you're writing City of Angels and 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 it's about to be given birth? Well, Broadway was past its golden age, let's put it that way. Sure. American Broadway. And it was the time of the British musical. So there was Phantom and um, I think Miss Saigon at that point. Uh, is is that correct? I and, think I think Miss Saigon was just about to cross the pond, and it was a, a an era where the Brits were kind of running the show. Sure. And I, on the other hand, here I was, a younger person writing with two of my musical theater uh, heroes. Speaking of heroes, Cy Coleman and Larry Gelbart, and so I thought, you know, if there's a chance that we could revive the American side of this uh, equation, working with these two amazing men, uh, we had a really good shot. Uh, although everything is a risk in theater, and, uh, and there are very few truly original musicals that are written from scratch, not based on other existing properties. Ours was inspired by Mickey Spillane novels and um, detective stories and film noir, but the story itself and the, the telling of two stories. Um, that's one of the things about the City of Angels. It's, it takes longer to describe it than to sit through the entire show. <laughs> exactly. I've taken so many notes for this episode, and you sometimes I can record an episode and just speak off the cuff. With this show, trying to translate it into a, a podcast form is really challenging. So congratulations and thank you for that. <laughs> well, and and essentially, if I, I'll, I'll take a stab at it. I haven't done this in a while, but... A writer named Stein, who's written a series of detective novels about a detective named Stone. And he's coming to Hollywood to turn that first novel into a screenplay. And we see Stein, the writer, writing that screenplay in living color as we see the screenplay come to life on stage in black and white. So it, it sort of unfolds in a lot of interesting, complicated ways that aren't complicated if you're watching it. But to describe it is is confusing. Absolutely. And, it's very, um, very visual in terms of storytelling. In fact, this is the I think Jill would probably know this as well as I, as I. But there are there were more set changes in this show than had ever been on stage in a Broadway theater up until that moment. I think there were thirty five or thirty six and, and Larry Gelbart, Larry Gelbart actually had a quote about that. Quote, the stage manager has a cue every eight seconds, said Gelbart. It's like O'Hare Airport backstage. Yes. And that's why you are the guest on this episode, Miss Jill Gold. Absolutely. Uh, David, let's talk about your collaborators, shall we? Um, because of the three, you're the only one left. And I never got the chance to meet Cy Coleman. You're the closest chance I'm going to have to meeting Cy Coleman and, and Larry Gelbart. So tell me about these guys. We did an episode last year because it was a, an election year all about Will Rogers Folly. So we went to a deep dive on Cy Coleman. He usually worked with, or I guess not usually, but a lot of his big hits were with female lyricists like sure. Carolyn Lee and, um, and uh, Dorothy Betty Fields, Compton. Betty Comden. 
so what was it like working with him and and did you feel like you two complimented each other well we got along really well i i i was really lucky to have a shot at even writing this show and essentially it was a a, a bunch of people that knew me that kept calling Cy and saying, you should write with this kid. I was Aww. in fact a kid at the time. And it took him about five years to finally pick up the phone and, and call me about doing something. And he called me about a different show that really didn't interest me, but writing with Cy Coleman interested me a lot. Of course. So I went with him two or three times on the other show and said, you know, I was hoping when you called me that you were calling me about what I had read in the New York Times was a, a detective story musical with a jazz score that you were writing with Larry Gelbart called Death is for Suckers. That was the title. Oh, how funny. And uh, so I said, well, we're talking to a lot of big shots for that show. And I said, well, would you consider me? And he said, you know, I'll talk to Larry. And then three months went by and he called me up and said, let's take a shot at this. Let's let's see if it, if our collaboration works. And what they proposed was that we would write three songs after which we would stop and look at what we had accomplished and decide whether we would all go forward together, which was a very polite way of saying whether or not I was fired. (laughs) (laughs) At that point, Larry had only written a detective story and he wasn't planning on writing the uh, framing story about Stein. That hadn't even crossed his mind about the writer writing a detective story. It was just a spoof. And so I wrote, there was a melody that Cy gave me and I wrote the lyric and it was, um, it turned out to be lost and found and I loved it. Larry loved it. So we went on to the second one, which was uh, another melody first song. And I heard this melody and I thought, oh my God, if I can write this song, if I can write a lyric that they are happy with, not only will I get this job, but I will have written a Cy Coleman standard because I thought the melody was so beautiful. And that was with every breath I take. And they loved it. And we never looked back. From then on, it, we just moved forward together. Um, You're killing so I, me. You like, like, I don't know baseball metaphors, but like, that's like hitting them out of the park. Two in a row, right, in the, right off the top. And with no dribbling at all. <laughs> um, it was really exciting for me. And I, it was always, the entire experience was a pinch me experience. Can, can this really be happening? Um, Larry and, and Jill can confirm this was the warmest, most charming, amazing man. Cy was delightful in a very different way. And, uh, Larry from the get go treated me like I was a colleague, an equal Cy treated me like a treasured protege. Eventually our friendship changed as, you know, as we, after the success of city of angels and, and he was very kind to me through the whole experience. Uh, we became colleagues and 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 friends and and moved forward on that basis. But I still was proving myself to Cy and Larry. On the other hand, acted as if I had already proved myself, which was very generous on his part because there was a lot of faith involved. <laughs> sure, sure. But I mean, you also came back with, "If you're not celibate, we can raise hell a bit." So it would be like, "All right, I think you know what you're doing." Uh-huh. Well, and uh, I had just had a conversation with somebody asking me whether we made up Mallory's name to rhyme with salary. And I said, oh, <laughs> her name is Mallory Kingsley. And I found the rhyme from her name. You're but, like, uh, that's my job. <laughs> <laughs> that's so great. Now, uh, Larry Gelbart 
we haven't done a, an episode on funny thing happened on the way to the forum, but that's probably what he's uh, up at this up until this point what he's best known for in the Broadway musical world. Sure. And uh, I, I mean, king of comedy, very funny. In Movie Land, he had been nominated for Oscars for Tootsie and um, Oh God, is that right? That uh, oh God, and he created Mash for television. And I mean Mash, right? Exactly. Now I didn't realize that he was born and raised in Beverly Hills, basically. He he grew up in Beverly Hills. And so the knowledge and the kind of satirical wealth that he had to pull from in terms of spoofing Hollywood was pretty deep. Yes. And he was also, as I think you can see in the television show MASH, had some pretty progressive ideas that he was always trying to get into his work. And, you know, with what David said about Larry treating him as, as an equal, Larry was like that with everybody. A lot of creative teams, even directors to some extent sometimes, but, but especially writers, lyricists, composers, um, don't always acknowledge the stage managers except to say, I need a rewrite, you know, that sort of mm-hmm. thing. And in rehearsals, the other stage managers, I got their comments and the things they remember are, Larry and Pat Gelbart loved being in rehearsals. Larry was the most fun when he and his wife, Pat, would hang out in the stage manager's office before a show and he would crack one-liners at everything. Oh my um, gosh. I was lucky enough, he and I got along very well and he hired me to do a couple of just reading workshops with him after City of Angels. Um, one was a Lenny Bruce musical that he was asked to show doctor. And then we, uh, David and Larry, put together a Cy Coleman review called The Best Is Yet to Come. And I did that with them. And just a lovely man. He gave me a huge coffee table film noir book with an inscription of gratitude for my work. I mean, just a love. And I was the third stage manager. I wasn't the big boss on that one. Right. And just a lovely, lovely guy. That's so beautiful to hear. I love that. And I honestly wouldn't have guessed with his wicked sense of humor. That's what made it so fun to hang around him. <laughs> now, with his uh, knowledge and upbringing in Beverly Hills and, and Hollywood, was this whole thing his idea? Oh, um, well, absolutely. Going back to the story about the moment we decided to move forward as a team, uh, we'd written three songs. I think we may have done the fourth song. And Larry said, you know, th- what you and Cy are doing is going to be new for Broadway. I mean, no one's really done a true jazz score. And what I'm doing is just a spoof of detective stories or film noir. That, that's been done before. I, I want to figure out a way to do something that holds my interest and that, that I think will live up to, to be as fresh as what you're doing. And he said, give me a few months. So he took, he paused for three months. Larry, Asai and I continued to work on the outline of the detective story, we found another spot or two that would that would be part of whatever Larry came up with. And he invited us to come out to Los Angeles about about uh, three months later. And he pitched the idea of Stein and Stone and the black and white and the color and the two stories going together. So we thought that was great. And we started together from the very beginning and outlined the entire show then we went back and spotted all the songs. So we, we were part of this thing that all three of us from the very outset and we're very pleased with ourselves and we're excited about the outline. And, and Larry told me, he said, this is going to be some 
some people's favorite musical. And I said, not just mine. And he said, no, the people are going to love this show. Jill's raising her hand. How long did it take to write it? And were like was welcome to the club that that whole flop was that happening at the same time because they happened in the same calendar year right so i um so i like to he taught me this you have to just keep a lot of pots boiling on this on the stove because you never know when something's going to go and um gotcha and i can tell you that because whoever counted on COVID, we were in um preview for city of angels for revival in london um, a year ago was March with uh, Vanessa Williams playing Alora Kingsley, the femme fatale. And it was a beautiful production, uh, really great cast vocally as good or maybe better than we've ever had. And we, the previews were sold out and we got through our eighth preview. I think it was a matinee on a Saturday. And I came back to my hotel and turned on CNN while I scarfed down some dinner and they announced that they were on the following Monday, they were going to end flights between London and the UK and the United States. So I called the producer and said, I think I'm going to, can you get me a ticket? I want to go home the next day. And I did. And the following Monday, they shut, shut down the West End entirely. And so, yeah, there are a lot of unexpected things that happen in the theater. So it's good to keep lots of projects going. Wow. wow. Uh, so I um, followed through with uh, Welcome to the Club while we were casting city of angels i think oh wow okay cool did you have any expectations or were you just like i'm living the dream who cares what happens well actually i uh, i was living the dream but i was very aware that um it had been 10 years since i finished law school that i was trying to be a lyric writer for the theater and i realized that this show was going to open and if it did not succeed it could take me another 10 years to get a show on Broadway, which also may has a one in eight chance or one in 12 chance. I'm not sure what the current statistics are. So I thought this better be a success. What an opportunity. And if this didn't work, then I thought the chances that I could actually stay in this business as a lyricist were pretty slim. Did you have any idols or people that you looked up to in terms of your lyric writing? Oh, absolutely. Um, Stephen Sondheim, Irving Berlin, Cole Porter, Alan J. Lerner, and probably my favorite uh, is uh, Sheldon Harnick. Oh, that just made me happy. Uh, We love to talk about She Loves Me on the podcast. In fact, we look for an opportunity at any chance to drop She Loves Me. So thank you for giving us that opportunity. (laughs) What She Loves Me moment is always when people are talking about writing lyrics that define the character uh, there's a line in She Loves Me where the uh, young man is talking about the woman that he that he writes love letters to. And he says, and uh, he talks about looking for the, to the time, quote, when I meet my lady of the letters who puts tiny faces in her O's. Well, that just says everything about him and the other character. It's so beautifully written. And anyway, I love Sheldon Harnett and She Loves Me. That's fantastic. Ah, okay. I'm already loving this. A couple more things. So you go into rehearsals. Talk to me about the tech. Um, And Jill, I'm sure you can add a few things here. We can always talk about more about this later. But with it being such a a huge show in terms of scene changes, what was that tech like? It was insane. First of all, we didn't go out of town because of the enormity of the show. And also Larry and Cy and Michael Blakemore, the director, 
didn't want to go out of town. I, of course, being young and excited about it, I was desperate to go out of town because I thought it's the best way to get a show in good shape. Sure. So we were opening cold in New York, which was terrifying. And the set was so huge and it took so long to get it into the theater that um, tech was very long. And by the time we did our first preview, intermission was probably 35, 40 minutes because act one was in the, in the alley behind the theater, act two. And then they would do the changeover and it took at least two weeks before they could actually figure out a way to get all of it in, in its place so that they could do the, the and, and uh, Jill can tell you better than anyone. David and Larry inside did not make it easy on the stage crew or the stage managers. <laughs> Act one has 20 scenes. Act two has 17 scenes. Oh my and gosh. some of those are 55 seconds, 40 <laughs> seconds, 35 seconds. So, and each one of those involves some sort of scene change. Now, sometimes it was just a phone folding out from the proscenium so that we could do an onstage change while Uli was on the phone for 45 seconds or something. But every single one of those involved a change. And most were changing from the film world to the real world and vice versa. So it was color to black and white. So mistakes did not go unnoticed because of the drastic change in in look. In the color palette, right. I'll say something else about it that was genius though on their part. And this was... uh, Robin Wagner as well, the set designer. We have to shout out Robin Wagner, who was one of the great designers of Broadway. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and what made this so worth it, we had winches. We didn't have automation then. We had winches. Um, Can you explain what those are? Winches are when you have a set piece. It can be a, a flat piece that you put furniture on top of called a pallet. And what you do is you have what's called a dog, which is a basically a slot, a metal slot that's attached to a cable in the floor. It's like a cable car. And you drop another piece of metal, a knife through the unit into that dog. And then when the cable moves, the unit moves, you hope. Doesn't always happen. Um, a knife and a dog. What a terrible image. I right? know. <laughs> Seriously. I think somebody who had issues with them named those purposely. But let's knife the dog. Um, but... <laughs> But nowadays, that's you still do that, but it's all computerized. Someone pushes a button and the cables move and everything happens. Back in the day, someone had to hand crank those cables backwards wow. and forwards. Um, and I just want you to know, Jill, that my dog is within earshot of this, so be careful. Yeah. So oh sorry. Gosh. Don't terrorize the poor puppy, please. Um, but the genius, the genius of using units that traveled side to side and up and down, and we had sliders. So it was very cinematic. We did lots of pans. We did lots of sweeps. We did irises with the shut with the sliders coming Come in. in. So yeah. everything looked cinematic, and it was beautiful. One of the most amazing moments was when they go when the detective goes to the to the billionaire, I guess millionaire at that point mansion, and you see him walk through a series of sliding doors. She goes, "This way, please." And all these doors open and they, they, as they walk through them, another set opens and another set opens. I think there were three sets. And finally they were in this space where they're wheeling in the iron lung and, and it was the solarium and it was quite dramatic. And, and she walks up to him, the gold digger and says, you look wonderful. darling." <laughs> I think that that is what I love most about this show 
is that this was the moment when American musical theater finally made some progress in synthesizing the power of design and spectacle that shows like Phantom, you know, that had come from uh, from England, fusing that with the traditions of musical comedy because the the intelligence and wit of the writing is every bit as impressive as the design and vice versa. They are complementing each other constantly throughout the show. As collaborators, all the kudos to you guys. Well, thank you. It was a it was a very happy team. Everyone loved one another and, and everyone got along beautifully. And the cast also was just filled with wonderful people. We were very lucky. That's that's amazing. So the show opens. You guys get maybe one of the best reviews that Frank Rich has ever given in the New York Times. Frank Rich, who was known as the butcher of Broadway, right? He could he could take down a musical with just one review. And with City of Angels, he gave you guys such a glowing review that box office soared after that review came out. And we had very little sales prior to that review. So that, And thankfully, most all the reviews were pretty good. Ironically, there was one kind of lukewarm review, and it was Clive Barnes, who was oh. in the post. But And it shows you how precarious theater was, particularly at that time. If, if he had still written for the New York Times that review would not have saved the show. And the New York Times was pretty much everything wrote on what the New York Times thought. So we were very lucky that uh, the butcher of Broadway had replaced uh, uh, Clive Barnes. In Frank Rich's book, that is kind of a collection of all of his reviews, at the end of the City of Angels one, he writes an addendum that the night that he saw the show, the heat was broken and the entire audience was freezing and bundled up in their parkas. And he still enjoyed the show that much. And it really proved to him the power of theater and transporting you to a place of true enjoyment. It was so cold that the bass fiddle cracked. Oh, crap. (laughs) Oh, my God. That's crazy. Which, speaking of instruments, can we talk about this band? Because... Oh my so god. Billy yes. Byers, who was the orchestrator with with Cycleman both on this and Will Rogers, right? Yep. He created if you haven't people, if you haven't heard this cast album, the original cast album, go listen to it. It is one of the snazziest sounding things you'll ever hear in your life. Well, Billy used to refer to the orchestra as his wet dream orchestra because <laughs> he was <laughs> best musicians in every category, the best horn players, the best string players, everyone was stellar. The pianist, Sai used to say, you're my second favorite pianist. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. So now it comes to Tony Award time. Uh, you guys are a hit in the town. So is Grand Hotel, which was another show that very intelligently used design in its storytelling. So you guys, between the two of you, you really are creating momentum back in the musical theater world. Uh, Once we get to Tony Knight, Grand Hotel wins some, you guys win some, including you yourself. Can you talk to us about that evening? Sure. That was thrilling. Um, We we won all the major awards. Best book, best score, best musical, best best set. That's right. um, Best actor. And best featured actress, yes. um, which is pretty great. That is, that's um, huge. Grand Hotel, I, I totally downplay that. You're right. You guys swept, in for all intents and purposes. I mean, Grand Hotel, I have to say, was a gorgeous show, and and uh, we didn't have any choreography, so 
uh, Tommy won for that. I think uh, I think Tommy won Best Director. I, I won't say Michael Blakemore was robbed, but it was certainly his contribution to the show was extraordinary. And uh, but he he made it up. He won Best Director for a play and Best Director for a musical on the same night several years later. So that was the Kiss Me Kate year, right? Yeah, absolutely. Wow, good for him. He's uh he knows comedy. He originally did Noises Off. So if you want somebody who understands how to visually give an uh, a theatrical audience some comedy, Michael Black- Blakemore's your guy. And although I was the newcomer on the team, uh I I'm, I will proudly take credit that Michael Blakemore was my idea because I seen <laughs> really that's awesome. He hadn't done a musical, certainly not a big Broadway musical. Sure, sure. And um and we were looking for a director, and uh, I had seen a play called Made in Bangkok that was in London that had twenty five scenes in it, and it was so elegant and seamlessly done that and Noises Off, of course, was so funny that um i thought we should talk to him and let and and michael always says when i started doing city of angels that was the first time i was really in show business up until then he was in the theater but now he was in show business uh-huh. That's so sweet. and another lovely man another Truly. lovely person that you just wanted to be in the room with and not only very smart and very funny and very good at what he did but also just charming yep this is so fantastic because i feel like on this podcast, when we're talking a lot about shows in our in our history, including uh, shows directed and choreographed by my friend Jerry Robbins, there's this generation that's like the generation of great manipulators <laughs> who are true, true geniuses, but create trauma while they do it. And it's so great to hear about a team that it was exactly the opposite of that. I will tell you one instance where it wasn't. Uh, years after the L.A. production and the national tour, we did a production of the McCallum Theater in Palm Desert. Uh, David and Larry were both there, I believe. I know Larry was. Um, and I, it was the last time that the three of us were together. Right. Oh, wow. And and it was sort of like a reprise slash encores version in that the band was on stage. Hmm. Um, but we still had staging. We still had some scenery. We had the desks that were sort of all important and that sort of thing, but it was a very truncated version, no drops or anything like that. Um, And so we also did some trims in the show itself because we didn't need all the incidental music because we weren't doing big scene shifts and that sort of thing. And my standalone memory from that production is being in this very small, narrow stage management office with Larry on the phone, landlines back then, with Cy, and Larry had made trims and, and you know, there were things, and Cy was saying, I'm not cutting anything. And Larry, and they got into a yelling argument, which I had never heard Larry yell. I mean, and I could hear Cy through the phone oh, <laughs> from shit. the other side of the room. And I was just like, I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be here. <laughs> but it was also fascinating. <laughs> oh, I bet. I bet. Well, especially when your score is like being touted as this jazz masterpiece. And then they're like, all right, so we need you to cut 20%. Like, what? Yeah. It was only um, scene change music and underscore. Oh, my gosh. Really? Okay. (laughs) Brilliant, I have to say. I mean, part of what Cy did that was so spectacular, it was like scoring a film. Uh, There's a scene where there's a party and there's an onstage cocktail pianist. And even the underscoring of that scene is spectacular because each moment is scored with the theme 
of the real life person that's, uh, I mean, it's really clever. And so wow. I can understand him not wanting to do that. But on the other hand, what were we supposed to do? Sit there for three minutes in silence playing that music? It was. He's like, the band's on stage, people. What else do you need? Right. <laughs> that party scene is near and dear to my heart because my husband was the tenor in the Angel City Four Quartet. That's how we met, thanks to David Zippel and his team. And oh, my we, God. And when I was running backstage, we used to dance in the wings as Aww. Del DaCosta tinkled on the cocktail piano before Phil's entrance into the party. And we've now been married 25 years. So there you go. Forget great. Hercules. Now that's the that's the story. That's the story. <laughs> you guys, thank you so much for for talking about this. And David, thank you for joining us. Is there anything, any other moments or memories that you'd love to to leave us with? Just that it was one of the most joyous experiences in my life, um, and that even at the time, I thought if I can do one thing that is as creatively successful on all levels as this show, uh, you know, I, it would be great. Um, but I, even if I can't, it, and I've done some things I'm really proud of. I, I think this, as a first experience, you can't really beat City of Angels. Wow, bravo! Before you go, David, I just want to say not only do I thank you for meeting my husband but City of Angels to this day after 36 years of being a professional stage manager just my favorite show I could have done that show forever the jokes never get old to me the lyrics are so clever the music is so beautiful the whole show is a perfect package and your lyrics, especially the interior rhymes, the double entendres, uh, the storytelling, the character building, it's just so perfect. And the other thing we, we referred to this earlier, Jeffrey, but about Larry and putting not issues, but social commentary, maybe into yeah, some social, of these pieces. That's a better way of saying it. Absolutely. The, um, the women in this show, even though the real life is set in like the 50s, so it's not current day. And the film noir is obviously film noir. And there are dumb blondes and there are femme fatales and there are, but every single one of those women is either smarter than you think she is or smart enough to trade quips with Stone. Every single one of those women is a strong woman in some way. So I just think, especially for being said in those two eras, that these three men made really strong women. Wow. That's a great endorsement. Thank you. This musical will stand the test of time as long as people can make the set. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, in today's age of projections, you don't have to have 10 different drops for five scenes, one in black and white, one in color. You can have a back wall that you project on that's the house in color and black and white. You can have an LED wall and bring all sorts of backgrounds up as you want. There's all right. sorts of ways you can do it without having all the physical pieces these days. And I think uh, I think people should jump on that and hire me. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. Thank you again, David. Please, please be well and can't wait to see uh, what's coming from you in the future. Is there anything you want to plug? Well, I, sure. Cinderella. I'm, I'm doing a new Cinderella with Andrew Lloyd Webber and uh, I'm very proud of it. I, it's, it is going to be so spectacularly beautiful. The designs are uh, by Gabriella Tylova and um, she's a genius and it's going to play. We're opening in London 
they're saying that we're going to open uh, the opening night is July 14th. Oh my and gosh, that's coming up. You can actually meet that schedule. Um, a lot of it has to do with how the virus goes and, or, and the, and the vaccinations in London go. Uh, you can hear three of the songs on, uh, and on your favorite streaming platform. This is the Apple. bad Cinderella. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah. It's Bad great. Cinderella. It's a great tune. I, I have a heart. Thank you. I know I have a heart and uh, only you, lonely you. Yes. Um, so please listen for that. And the whole album will be out probably in the next six weeks. We record, that was a lockdown CD. We recorded the whole thing or album uh, while in lockdown. And oh uh, um, I, I think the show is going to be delightful. The The book is by Emerald Fennell, who is Promising the, Young Woman, Emerald for it? That's right. Oh my gosh. One of my favorite movies of the entire year. My favorite movie of the year, hands down. And uh, she's delightful. And uh, she's sort of the me of this production. I uh, like in City of Angels. She's young and considerably younger than Andrew and I am, and is a delightful person and a really talented writer. Uh, she also is playing Camilla in. Uh, the crown so if you've watched season three or four of the crown and you you notice camilla that's that's emerald Fennell. she's a remarkable person that is so exciting i gotta make a trip to the uk as soon as uh as soon as i can because i need to see prince of egypt and, and now i need to see your cinderella well, i hope you'll come and i we're hoping that it will you know after it opens in london that we'll be able to bring it to new york as soon as new york is open as well so beautiful could you potentially have city of angels and cinderella running at the same time as city of angels going to restart well that was the plan originally it was uh, uh, uh we were only city of angels was a six-month run so they were going to overlap for about six weeks but then city of angels closed um i don't know whether we can pull it all back together again mm. uh the set had to be removed and so i think they have to completely recapitalize in order to do this it's still possible, though. Well, fingers crossed. You rock. So great to talk to you. Thank you. What a delight. I enjoyed your talking to you. I look forward to hearing the podcast. Awesome. And hearing more Jill. Yes, more Jill. That's, that's what the that's world needs. That's actually the opposite of what people usually hope for. You both know me well enough to know that. Uh, love you, David. Thank you for doing this. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank Take you. Um, That was amazing. Thank you, Jill, for allowing that to happen <laughs> my pleasure what, what a thrill okay so you and david worked together in la on this uh, la production of city of angels it only lasts a little bit like you said but then starts the tour so now i have to think that a huge show like this going on tour is interesting <laughs> <laughs> that was a very nice way to put it as you toured and got into smaller and smaller spaces you had to decide what to ditch from the set when it wouldn't fit in the wings. Um, <laughs> right. So it's all about where you're playing and planning ahead for that. And, and the PSM of any tour along with the head carpenter and the production supervisor maybe are looking way ahead for those kinds of things. Well, if we can't use these seven pieces, let's put them all on one truck and send them, them to the city after that. Right. And how do you, wow. how do you not waste your money? Right. Okay, so like looking ahead, this theater is big enough to have these pieces. We don't need them for the next city. Let's send them to that city now. Wow, that's a lot. And on on big shows like Phantom of the Opera or Wicked, I was out on Wicked, 
we would have doubles of some things. We had a double of the proscenium and the dragon, mm-hmm. and that would jump ahead to the next city so that that didn't take tech time to put up and install when we got there. Because it takes a fair amount of time to get that sucker up. Absolutely. The other thing about touring is you're adding local crew people to all your scene changes every time, oh, right? interesting. So I you have to teach that. them what to do. You can't carry 20 people with you. That's not cost effective. Right. When I was on the Les Mis tour, we loved Tuesdays in a new city because we would, the crew members had to be in costume because they were visually seen in a lot of places. So we had turntable rehearsal where these older, lovely gentlemen usually had to pick up a table, step onto a moving turntable, one of them backwards, find the right spike marks, put the table down and get off the moving turntable without falling on their faces. Yeah, it was actually um, sort of to our discredit, one of our favorite moments every week (laughs) we would watch them because we all mastered it by then. So yeah. I had I had a Madame Thenardier fall into the orchestra pit at the end of Master of the House. No, I was, was calling, okay? I was calling the show. It was in San Francisco, and there was a four-legged table that was the only um, piece of furniture left on stage at the end of that number, and the Thenardiers were downstage standing behind it, and mm-hmm. they hit the button, and they leaned on the table, <laughs> and the legs gave. No. And they were both they large just gave people, out. but they just gave. And Madame Thenardier went straight into the pit. So I'm watching the conductor monitor and I see him just jump. And the Thenardier managed to to lie flat and rode the turntable up and around and got off at upstage, right? (laughs) But I'm still calling the scene transition. And this is going into Paris. So all the barricades are coming on and a bridge is flying in and the entire ensemble is walking on stage. And I'm just calling cues. And there's nothing else you can do. Well, I paged downstairs to the PSM and I said, go to the pit. That's all I had time to say. Uh-huh. She had fallen on the drum kit, not on the cymbals, thank God, <laughs> not on a Stradivarius violin, right. not on, you know, she had fallen on top of like the snare and the top of the bass and probably the drummer. And she w- had some bruises, but she made it up from the basement, up the stairs, on stage, upstage right, for her entrance into into that scene. That story just took a huge turn that I did not expect. The funny what is thing this actor's it, name? Do you remember who it, this oh, was? Oh, it's Gina Farrell. Speaking of She Loves Me, she's in the roundabout um, filmed production of She Loves Me. That's absolutely bonkers. Yeah. With the synchronicity. Yeah, it was crazy. Usually during an episode, we talk through the whole script and score. With this show, it's going to be a nightmare. So I've made some notes so that we can give everybody a a true idea for what's in the script because there are a lot of things that you miss just by reading the synopsis in in the liner notes in the CD or, you know, whatever. Um, But for the most part, we'll, we'll be gliding through it. And if there are any moments that you want to talk about or have memories of, by all means... Right. And I have I have favorite lines and some scenes. And I oh favorite, my gosh! Absolutely, favorite, favorite lyrics. lyrics. And some scenes. Absolutely. The show begins, and we're in the world of the film. You got grayscale costumes, scenery, lighting is cool, so that it has that very uh, stark quality. And we meet Stone, who is a private eye. 
right? He's an investigator. He's just been shot. But even though he has like a bullet in his shoulder, he couldn't be cooler. Like this is the coolest cat you've ever met in your life. Played by James Naughton, won a Tony for it. Any memories about Jimmy? He was lovely. He probably inwardly rolled his eyes a lot because he knew the show and we were having to remount with a lot of new people. But he had sure. Randy Graff still from New York to play off of and they were a well-oiled machine. But it never seemed like they'd done it before. I mean, Randy Graff told a story at Stars in the House. They did a City of Angels reunion, which everyone should watch if you like Absolutely. the show. The original cast. And every night, Uli wrote a note to Stone as part of the action. And every night that note went off stage in Stone's costume pocket. And his dresser would take it out of his pocket and save it unbeknownst to them. And at the end of the run, he presented Randy with every note she had ever written over the course of the run in like a scrapbook. And then she gave it to Jim Nutt. Oh, my gosh. I think that's the story. Watch watch the video and make sure I'm right. But it's something like that. And it's lovely. That's but anyway, so that's the relationship cute. they had. Here's here's a story. So we were trying to rehearse a replacement for James who would go on the road with us while we were still playing at the Schubert, obviously, because we needed mm -hmm. to have people in place. And they hired David Soul, who was Hutch from Starsky and Hutch. I don't okay. know if he'd ever done a musical. I don't remember. Um, but he was a well-known actor and they thought he would be a draw since everybody knew him from TV and Starsky and Hutch was still in the vocabulary. He came in. He was a nice enough guy that I recall. I was, I was playing all the parts opposite him while the uh, production stage manager was working with him to teach him the blocking. And he would do fine in the room. He would, you know, learn his stuff and we'd walk through it and he'd, he'd write it down. And the next night he'd come back and it was like he'd never done it. Oh, no. And that happened over and over. And we realized he had quite a drinking problem. <gasps> and we had to fire him, but we didn't have the right to, you know, it was like, how yeah. do we tell our general manager that we want to fire Hutch, you know, <laughs> because, but he just couldn't, he wasn't retaining. And so Cy Coleman bailed us out. The PSM, Scott, called Cy and said, what are we going to do? And Sai said, I'll, I'll take care of it. I have casting approval. So I will just call the producers and say, I don't want him. And oh, that's what happened. Wow. So David sold. Then we got Jeff McCarthy, who was the Javert in Les Mis at the Schubert. And right, I had worked great. on that one as well. But going in, I didn't really like Jeff. It wasn't that I didn't like him. He was just, when I had worked with him on Les Mis, wasn't very friendly. He was very standoffish. He didn't mingle. He was so I just thought that's how he was. He came in and he was lovely and personable and had a sense of humor and was terrific in the role. And he admitted to me once that he actually played Javert for so long that he inherited a lot of the traits of Javert. Wow, he to the detriment dark. of his relationships and his mental health and you know he just wow. became that character so much that he couldn't shake it so that was lovely he was terrific and then this is near and dear to my heart especially we were in Cincinnati Ohio and I was having breakfast in the hotel restaurant and Scott came to me and said we have a new stone they just hired him because Jeff was leaving and he said I will tell you but you have to promise not to scream <laughs> okay okay and he said, Barry Williams. And I screamed because I am a huge Brady Bunch fan. Oh, my so, gosh. The so Greg Barry Brady. In, 
Barry came in and I got to run the entire show in his hotel room with him playing all the parts, including all the romantic interests. And it was the highlight of my life. Don't tell my my husband. Um, (laughs) No, he knows. But it was great. And, And Barry is a lovely guy and was very kind to all his fans. His book, Growing Up Brady, came out while we were in Louisville. He, I have a picture of him holding his first copy. When, oh, we were, wow. when we were in St. Paul, Danny Bonaducci was doing his comedy act in Minneapolis. So Barry and Phil and I jumped in a cab after the show and Barry took us to his show. So I have a picture standing between Danny Partridge and Greg Brady. <laughs> These are the perks of show business, friends. <laughs> what a great memory. So James Naughton, Stone, a.k.a. Barry Williams, a.k.a. Jeff McCarthy. Jeff McCarthy. <laughs> a.k.a. not David Soule. <laughs> he's, a, he's a cool cat. Um, he's also got just some of the best Larry Gelbart dialogue and voiceovers. The one that I really wanted to talk about was his description of Los Angeles. It's fantastic. Here we go. He says... Palm trees finger the sky, and there's enough sunshine to lay off some on Pittsburgh. But that's all on top. L.A., truth to tells, not much different than a pretty girl with the clap. That's it. And New York thought that was funny. L.A. lives it, right? Randy Graff actually had a great quote from, uh, it was in the opening night society column, talking about our opening night party. And Randy Graff's quote was, in New York, they laugh. Here, they laugh like they know. Oh, shoot. Right? That's That's revealing. Yes. I feel like that line hits at the top of the show, and if you get a belly laugh, you know it's going to be a good show. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. So at that point, of course, because it's a film noir, we flash back to see how this all went down, right? Why he was shot. And we see Stone's secretary, who's named Uli. Uli, who is played by Randy Graff, who won a Tony Award for this role. She's the original Fontaine in Les Mis. Oh, my gosh. Les Mis is coming up left and right this right? this episode. Giving She Loves Me a Run for His Money. Right. <laughs> and uh, a great, great character. She ushers in Alara Kingsley, who's, like we said, the femme fatale. And Alara is hiring Stone, the private eye, to find her stepdaughter. She's married to this, like we said, this older gentleman who's not well. And he has two children. The daughter has gone missing. And so now uh, she's hiring Stone to find her because it's upsetting the husband. Stone feels from the get-go that he should not take this case. But she offers him a lot of money, and she also has great legs, so he decides to do it. Now, this is when that first rewind moment happens. We we see Stein, the writer, come out on his desk, and now this is all in color. The, the costumes are in color, the lighting is warm, and he starts, you know, uh, Xing out on his ty- typewriter what he just wrote. We see the the actors do all of their stuff backwards. Um, It turns out that Stein had written this book called City of Angels. A producer by the name of Buddy, uh, who's also a director, loved the book and wanted to change it into or turn it into a movie. So he is working on creating the screenplay. Now, Buddy, Buddy is like the stereotypical horrible Hollywood producer director, like a Cecil B. DeMille, who's uh, just power hungry and has all of the money and awards to show for it. Like he gets stuff done. It's not that he's bad at his job. In fact, he's probably too good at it. And so now he has all of this unwieldy power that nobody can say no to, including the writer himself. 
Even though Stein is the writer of this movie, it seems that Buddy is completely running the show, making him change things that he doesn't want to make, and Stein is going along with it for the exact same reason that Stone is going along with taking the case because of the monies. Now, his wife, Stein's wife, who uh, I always forget, I always get these names confused. So I'm going to skip the names and say his wife <laughs> doesn't like it. And like you said with David, these women are smart and don't take BS from anybody. Exactly. Now, she has to go back to NYC to do her job. And before she leaves, she very bluntly says, and by the way, while I'm gone, if you cheat on me, I'm going to know because I always know. And you're like, oh, boy, you feel that in the gut. And it sets up that he's had infidelities. Exactly. This guy, this he seems lost, man. You know, Stein is just lost. And it really brings into play these really beautiful themes of what how how do we use our art to make up for our own insecurities and how do they play off of each other um it's it's a really beautiful theme that amidst all of the comedy we we see throughout the the whole show yeah and it's his growth and story arc really mm-hmm. now stone secretary is not happy that he's taking the case just because he likes alora and the money and Stein's wife is upset about, you know, his infidelities and money. So these two women have this great song called What You Don't Know About Women. And I got to be honest, this is one of the songs that will not leave my mind. In fact, it's the very last button of the song is the thing that gets stuck in my brain from the show most. These two women are singing about their, you know, similar experiences, one in black and white, one in color. And they go, you're in need of a little enlightening on ladies in love, but you can't see. What you don't know about women is frightening and you don't know nothing about me. Get stuck in my head every time. Good job, David Zippel. Absolutely. And you, I think you can watch them do that. Maybe they did on the that Tony at the Awards. Tonys. Yeah. So amazing. Theater's great. <laughs> now, after this, we go back to the movie and Stone is at his apartment, and he turns on the radio, and that's when we uh, run into this Greek chorus that is essentially Manhattan Transfer, right? Absolutely. This amazing quartet of jazz musicians. And the melodies that Cy Coleman came up with are insane in terms of jazz music. A lot of them sound like Ella Fitzgerald's scats. But in four-part harmony. Exactly. And that's they also start out the show... Boom. Oh, right. The Boom. prologue. And then and scat in the dark as you're what and it's it sets the whole tone for the musicality of the piece. It's so sophisticated. Crazy, crazy. I think another reason I mean, we've talked so much about the set, but one of the other reasons why I think this show uh, doesn't get done very often, because my gosh, the musicality, the musicianship that it requires of the, of its uh, actors is incredible. Yeah, Absolutely. Our Greek chorus comes out. They sing, you got to look out for yourself, which is ironic because just as he's listening to them sing that, in quotes, on the radio, two thugs break down the door and beat up Stone, telling him he should quit this case. Which um, is the Tommy Toon, Marilyn Cooper joke in that one of them is named Big Six and one of them is named Sonny. Big Six is huge. Sonny is not. So, again, they're <laughs> a sight gag. But Sonny is the brains. Right, right, right. And and the other guy's the the brown. 
cut to Buddy, who's once again the producer of the film, and he's reading that scene and his secretary comes in. Now, this is the moment that we realize that these characters exist in both worlds because Buddy's secretary is also Stone's secretary, a.k.a. Randy Graff, a.k.a. Fontaine. A.k.a. Uli or Donna. Who isn't Randy Graff? (laughs) Right. Next in the story, the important things that we got to cover is that Stone keeps the case of the missing girl, even though he got beat up because Alora promises promises him even more money and a little nookie on the side. Um, and they, they do that by singing the tennis song, which is a great metaphor for their flirting. And the double entendres are so clever. Once again, your 10-year-old won't get them, but you will find them hysterical. And... <laughs> Another one that could be inappropriate, except Alora is leading it. The woman is doing the flirting to get her end. It's not the guy being creepy. It, um, that's so true. It could have been, baby, it's cold outside, but it's not. We also have another flashback to learn about why Stone is a private eye. It turns out he used to be a cop, and he was in love with this woman who was a lounge club singer um, who wanted to be a star. Her name was Bobby. And Bobby is played by the same woman who is Stein's wife. Everybody still with me? Good. Now, this is when we hear that amazing song that David was talking about, With Every Breath I Take, which is also, I think, one of the lowest songs any females had to sing in a musical. There's not a morning. Don't open up my eyes. (laughs) It makes me laugh every time. What ends up happening is she sleeps with a producer-director by the name of Irving, who is also played by the producer-director from real life. In order to get a role, Stone comes in, there's a, there's a fight, a gun goes off, and the producer-director dies. So because he was involved with that, he gets kicked off of the police force and is forced to become a private eye, and he loses his girl in the process. The irony being that because the same actress plays Gabby and Bobby, Bobby is having an infidelity to get what she wants. And Gabby is telling Stein he can't. The projection is deep. You can find all (laughs) sorts of ties like that, that that don't necessarily matter in the storytelling, but they were smart enough to put them in there. Yeah, so smart. Now we're back in the present. Stone is still looking for the missing stepdaughter. The Greek chorus sings, everybody's got to be somewhere. That leads into this montage that finally brings him back to his own apartment. And lo and behold, what does he find in his apartment? But the stepdaughter, a.k.a. Mallory, in his bed, wearing just a sheet, singing Lost and Found, which we just learned was the first song that Cy Coleman and David Zippel wrote together. And the surprise music that Phil picked as the first dance at our wedding reception. <gasps> he proposed to me with Stay With Me on stage with some of our cast members of City of Angels in a show that was not City of Angels. Speechless. That's so cute. He did He did good. That's so, so sweet. Um, so Mallory tries to seduce Stone. She gets far enough that somebody comes in and takes a photo of them, a very compromising photo. He's angry about it. His gun gets stolen. Then the next thing we learn is that 
the doctor of uh, the guy in the iron lung has been shot with that gun. Dun, dun, dun. That means that Stone is once again involved with a murder, which brings in one of the people that I really want to talk about, Munoz. Now, Munoz is obviously a, a Latinx police officer Mm -hmm. and he has an axe to grind with stone because he believes that stone got away with murdering the dude in his girlfriend's dressing room right Mm -hmm. and so now he's been just waiting for the opportunity to arrest him and he has this whole speech where he says the only reason you got away with murder is because of the color of your skin us brown folks don't have the same privilege He's lecturing Stone on his white privilege. 30 now, years ago. 30 years ago. This is what I'm talking about in terms of Larry Gelbart and his social commentary. Buddy, the producer slash director, chimes in and, and tells Stein, you got to change that. Like, we can't be talking about these social issues in this movie. People are going to, to hate that. And I just want to read from the script here. But he says, this town's crawling with congressmen. The last thing I need is for you to get blacklisted. You got any messages, put them in a letter, then don't mail it. I don't care what it is, just change all that brown, black, and yellow to red, white, and blue. Which is also interesting because the coroner in that scene is Asian. Interesting. In the script. We had an Asian actor, obviously. Alvin Ng was great. But it's actually Yamoto in the script, purposely Asian. Wow, wow, wow. So this is really potent stuff that I think is is really interesting and also reminds me that there was a time in which social commentary was considered politically incorrect. We have now completely reversed that. And now if something is politically incorrect, it's because it isn't being sensitive to some of these social issues. But it wasn't that long ago when being politically incorrect had the exact opposite definition. Right. Crazy. So uh, Stein caves and changes that whole speech, which is the moment that Stone, you know, I mean, let's face it, it's his alter ego. It's his doppelganger, breaks through the barrier of movie and real life and verbally chastises Stein for caving. He's like, come on, man. You know that this is what you want to write. What are you doing? It gives way to one of the great numbers of the show, You're Nothing Without Me, in which they're telling the other person, basically, that they're nothing without them. And that's how the first act closes. It's a great And number. again, the lyric writing, I, I've got to find a, another word than clever, smart, intelligent, witty, but they all <laughs> still apply. Um, David wrote for Stein, the creator of the character that he is verbally dueling with, You are a novel pain. I tell you, you're out of my mind. I mean, it's just so damn good. Absolutely. So smart. So great. Now, Act 2 has twists and turns galore. We're not going to go through them because they make your head spin. But we can say that that includes meeting the actual actors who will be playing some of these parts that we got to know in Act 1 in the future movie. Is that a good way of saying it? Absolutely. And that gives the opportunity for Larry Gelbart to write things like when they discover that Jimmy Powers, the crooner, is up for the role of Stone. A tenor I wouldn't give you two fives for. Right? (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I missed that one. That's hilarious. 
One of my favorites is, and I've actually quoted it since reading the script, Alora is going to be played by this woman named Carla, who is the wife of Buddy. Oh my gosh, you guys, I'm so sorry if you can if you can't keep this straight. She has these big earrings because she's also having an affair with with uh, with, Jim, with Jimmy Powers. So she has these big earrings and Buddy's like, you shouldn't wear those earrings. They make your head look big. And she's like, really? I like them. And he says, talk to me later when someone wants to put cream cheese and locks on them. Exactly. <laughs> great, great line. Such fun stuff. One of the really important plot points, however, is that the secretary starts sleeping with the writer. And despite the wife warning him, he is insecure and needs somebody to make him feel better. And so he starts sleeping with her. And this character, you know, who's the secretary in both worlds, she finds herself in this place of what's the right way of saying it? Always being uh, the second fiddle, always sort of the, always the mistress, never the bride. Fair enough. That's <laughs> to that's quite a new phrase. Always the mistress, never the bride. Maybe that's a t-shirt. Um, it comes to a head of this great song that Randy Graff sang called You Can Always Count On Me, which has now, I think, become a Broadway standard. This one has so many of my favorite lyrics. So she's talking about all of the, the men she's had in her life, uh, for better or worse, mostly for worse. Uh, and she says, One Joe who swore he's single got me sort of crocked, the beast. I woke up only slightly shocked that I defrocked a priest. I mean, come on. Interior rhymes. Funny The interior rhymes all over the place. And then if that wasn't good enough, then she goes, or else I attract the guys who are longing to do my hair. (laughs) You can always count on me. I mean, oh my gosh. You can dig into the script and score and never find your way out. (laughs) After we realize that that affair is happening... The wife finds out she's you get the feeling that she's done with her husband, uh, the writer, because this is once again, he's cheating on her. And that's when we can probably skip to the film being made, which is how we get the whole resolution of both the story that we've been seeing in the movie and in real life. The ending of the movie is that Alara, the femme fatale, I mean, we knew she was evil all along was getting her stepson to plan her stepdaughter's disappearance. Like, she was kind of facilitating this whole disappearance thing with the hope that they would all inherit the sick, rich husband's money. However, Alora didn't tell the stepson that she was then planning to get rid of him and the stepdaughter and the husband and take all of the money herself. Yeah. Is that fair way of saying it? There are more spoilers we could throw in there, but I won't. This will give you a reason to to investigate the show even more. But that that is kind of the ending. And as they're going to film this ending, because for some odd reason the director wants to, to film the ending first, Stein is on set watching all of these actors who are horribly miscast in their actual roles. He yells, cut. Which is obviously a huge no-no. Only the director gets to yell cut. But he does. He tries to take control back. And the director, of course, loses his mind and orders him off the set. At that point, Stone, the detective, the private eye who we've loved all of this time, appears at the typewriter. And he starts 
writing in the way that Stein has been writing and creates a happy ending for the real life. As Stone has been crafting the movie world, now the movie world is crafting the real world. And that gives way to a finale in which the wife comes back, Stein and the wife and the private eye, Stone, are kind of this happy threesome. And they sing You're Nothing Without Me, like a reprise, but now it's a positive reprise. It's interesting because some some people have trouble with the fact that Gabby does come back to Stein so quickly and easily. Mm-hmm. There's not a total resolution of that infidelity we've made up sort of thing, but it never really bothered me because Stone is writing it. Yeah. You know what I mean? So yeah. it's, it's a new scene. Maybe he's tossing out everything that went before, if you want to get really sort of metaphysical about it. Sure. But, um, and that's another instance, that grand finale, you see the picture in a lot of the reviews or online of everybody in the cast standing around on the film set and Luther in the Iron Lung and Stonestein and Gabby all up on a big cherry picker lift. The mm-hmm. three of them are in this basket up high like a crane. Well, guess what didn't happen on tour? <laughs> or some some cities had one or something, you know, we would try to do something, but that's something that got cut pretty quickly in, a, in any city. Well, of course it did, now that I think about it. But it yeah. is such a, a, a really beautiful stage picture of what happiness looks like. In the, in the reality that we've been seeing, Stein is not a whole person, but with these other attributes, either from his art or from his marriage, he is well on his way to claiming back his life and taking and it back. In a very literal way, he's now above all that. Yeah, he's above it. You're absolutely right. Because he does leave Hollywood. He says, like, screw it. I'm not interested. This is not my story. You can make this movie. You can make as, ma- as many millions as you want. But I need to have some integrity in my life. And what a great, what a great symbol for that cherry picker to take him up above it all. Mm-hmm. Well said, Jill Gold. <laughs> Thank you. Oh, my gosh. I hope everybody is still listening. (laughs) Thank God you edit. Anything else you want to say about this really interesting show? I mean, we've talked so much about it. Stage management is often a thankless job. Uh, You need to sort of have inner pride and do your job well and know that you've accomplished it. And um, there's not a Tony Award for it. There are people who know about it will give you kudos, but that's not why you do it. You do it for things like the perks of City of Angels. You do it for getting to be a part of a show that is just so good. I could have been running it for the past 30 years and never get tired of it. But then it's also sitting in the room with that creative team and that director and watching them work. And so many of us from that LA production and that tour are still friends Wow. Um, on Facebook and in real life. And you'll see if you watch the City of Angels stars in the house, that Broadway cast has that bond still too. And I think it's just a show that brings people together in so many ways. And many shows do that, I understand. But this one was just special for that group of people at that time. And I really hope that the London revival happens. Uh, I got to see Vanessa Williams as a Laura Kingsley. Are you kidding me? For everyone's sake, uh, especially David's, but for everyone's sake. But then I hope that also leads to more productions being done, especially with today's technology, without the millions and millions of dollars of the original. That's incredible. Me too. I can't wait to see it. I've never seen it on stage. I was going to ask if you'd ever done it. 
Nope. Mm. Read the script for the first time to do this episode. Yeah. And I can usually read a script pretty quickly. This one took some time. It's dense. This script reads on the page. The actors made it better and funnier. They elevated it even more. But the starting, the ground level was already wonderful. Um, So, yeah, you just never get tired of it. As always, if you have recommendations for shows you'd like us to cover on a musical theater podcast, you can always email me at a musical podcast at gmail.com. Please follow us on social media, Twitter and Instagram at a musical podcast for more great content. And if you want to be my favorite person in the world, subscribe, rate, and review the show. Uh, we also have a Tee Public store where we got lots of designs based on episodes past and present. Jill Gold, stage manager extraordinaire, how do we follow you and everything you're up to? Uh, I am very fortunately the co-author of a book called Stage Management. It's by Lawrence Stern and Jill Gold. Lawrence Stern wrote the original in the early, early 70s. I read it in college and he asked me to be the co-author a couple of editions ago. We have drastically rewritten it, ripped it apart, updated it. It's a beginning stage manager book. It's great for students. A lot of people use it as textbooks. But it's coming out this fall. So even if you had an older version of the book, get it. I think every actor, designer, playwright, producer should know what a stage manager does so that you respect that position. But also, you know, the millions of things we're doing behind the scenes for you. Amen. Buy the book or get the e-version or steal somebody else's copy. But um, (laughs) that's my plug. I do have a few things sort of in the works, but they're all just fingers crossed still in pandemic land. So I'm not going to bring any of them up we will keep our fingers crossed with you and uh thank you for everything that you've done and continue to do and i hope that this was a small uh, token of our appreciation for all of the stage managers out there well if i can't do what i love to do talking about it is the next best thing so thank you for giving me the opportunity my pleasure my honor and to everybody out there everybody's in a movie Sometimes we just turn the camera on. Mind blown. Jeffrey wondered what phrase we had stuck in our head. Can we do the... Um, the um, They're going to masturbate. Yeah, t- and it's your lucky day to stumble on us. You'll find us a bliss. It hardly seems at random. Your wife's to scrutinize as we will refuse. So take off your shoes. We'll search for clues in tandem. Yes! That's, that's been going through our heads over and over and over. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E dot org because only together we rise.